electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Bring in show music, please. Hi, I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on Squawk Pod. The dog days of inflation. Data is hot, hot, hot. What can be done about it? Overall, you have this unrelenting increase in prices, 0.7 on rent, up to 1% on food. There's every reason to think this would make the Fed tougher right here. Over in crypto world, it's winter, and one crypto lender has found a lifeboat to survive. BlockFi's CEO Zach Prince on the deal he made to bolster his balance sheet at a 95% discount on his business. Now, the goal of this deal from BlockFi's perspective was to bolster our balance sheet so that we can navigate these market conditions from a position of strength. Plus the lawsuit we've been waiting for. Twitter is taking on Elon Musk so that Elon Musk will take on Twitter. Tulane Law Professor Ann Lipton. Yeah, no, if this were a normal deal, (laughs) I mean, this is the thing, it's not a normal deal. We'd expect a settlement. It's Wednesday, July 13th, 2022. Squawk Pod begins right now. Stand and by in three, two, one, cue Andrew. Good morning and welcome to Squawk Box right here on CNBC. We're live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. I'm Andrew Ross Sorkin along with Joe Kernan. It is just the boys once again today. Becky is off, but we're going to see her a little bit later this week. I was fascinated, uh, Andrew, and, and I, I know you, you know, it's not necessarily your first read in the morning. It, it always is mine, but that's the lead editorial in the, in the Wall Street Journal. But our problems um, are small compared to what's happening on the continent. And I'm talking about across the board, energy, I'm talking about inflation, I'm talking about the central bankers are are much later over there. The euro is now basically at par, down 12% for the the year, down from 112 or 114. If it wasn't for all the plane delays at Heathrow, I think this would be the time to make the trip. That's a problem, too. But you're right, it would be the time to do it. But when you think about what they're trying to deal with over there, they've still got this unwieldy system where these, these economies that aren't even close to one another in terms of, I mean, they're all saddled with high taxes and, and too much regulation. But Southern Europe is not Germany. So to try to keep rates artificially low in, in countries that should have much higher borrowing costs, and they try to do that, as Larian used to say, multi-speed economies, it's no way uh, to run a continent. As a result, um, Germany has this weak euro now, right? Should, shouldn't they have great trade imbalances now? Shouldn't, shouldn't their companies be exporting? No, because what, what are they importing? They're importing energy, which is costing them more to import now. So they had the first trade uh, uh, deficit in, since 1990. So they're screwed over there. They, they are totally screwed. So I wanna make, I'm trying to make you feel a little bit better about, about what's being, going on about, here. It's an interesting piece. It's a lead editorial about, because th- that is no small Thing to see the euro at parity with the dollar. And it, it indicates, with all of our problems with inflation, why is the dollar hitting, the dollar index hitting new highs? I will tell you, though, in some places in the United States, the highest tax rate is actually higher than the euro. In 
I mean, across the board in terms of... Uh, you go look, personal income tax rates in Europe, and you look at what it would be at the well, highest, highest end, like in a place like New York. Corporate tax rates do, do, do all... Well, you're not, you're not saying that's good, are you? That's just... And, just and we'll, never have the, a comment. we'll never have the regulatory overhang. I mean, even look at the way their, their antitrust authorities work over there. I mean, it, the, the whole place is not as business-friendly as it is as we used to be in this country. First up on today's podcast, the stateside economy, the Consumer Price Index, the monthly measure of the cost of goods and services in the U.S. It's highly anticipated on Wall Street, on Capitol Hill, on Main Street. And June's reading came in much higher than economists expected. Headline CPI much hotter than expected, up 1.3 percent. And if we look at year over year, this is really hot. CPI is up 9.1% from a year ago, and that 1.3 number, that's just since last month. In order to find a higher month-over-month level, we're going back, and that's 2005. It is the sixth straight month that the price of food at home increased by a full percent. Rental costs saw the highest monthly increase since 1986. And gas is up 60% from last year. With that one, I bet you noticed. It's yet another month of the fastest pace for inflation since 1981. 41 years. Now, it's a big story. But inflation is not the whole story. Higher prices bite into consumer spending power. So we'll be looking out for retail sales data that's coming this Friday. And of course, a big part of that information is likely to involve those higher gas prices. Our in-house economists and market experts broke it all down. Here's Rick Santelli. In my opinion, the most important statement stated about inflation lately was Fed Governor Waller. We don't get inflation down and under control. We all worry about unanchoring of expectations. And that's something we just can't have done. Who basically said, all we really need is for inflation and prices to stop going up, the rate of change. And we've talked about this, which in my mind says that the political costs of inflation are going to end up being much higher than the Fed's financial costs. Because once it stops going up... Okay, the Fed is going to be able to slow down a bit, but the fact that they may remain at these high levels is not going to sit well with the public. Andrew, back to you. Rick, thank you for the numbers and some very smart analysis. We're going to get some additional uh, instant analysis from our senior economics correspondent, Steve Leisman, and senior markets commentator, Mike Santoli, as well. Steve, as you're looking through these numbers, what are you thinking? And maybe just as importantly, what is Jay Powell thinking right now? When I look at this report, I don't see any relief anywhere. Even before we got to this 9.1%, there had been some sectors that were behaving a little bit better. I look at rents going up. I didn't see any relief in apparel. There was some hope, uh, folks, that maybe with the inventory that Courtney Reagan's been talking about at some of the department stores that you might see some relief in apparel. Not much there. Um, I did see airline fares go down 1.8%. I don't even know what that means. I'm sure it's not going to hang on there. Uh, I guess the only question is you had double-digit 11%, uh, 12% increases in energy as to whether or not some of that comes off the boil uh, in the future, given what's happened uh, in gasoline futures markets, that they've come down by nearly a dollar, at least from the peak, uh, whether or not and how that shows up and when that shows up in the consumer price is really a question. But overall, you have this unrelenting increase in prices from varying degrees from 0.7 on rent up to 1% on food. 
Uh, and, and there's every reason to think this would make the Fed tougher right here, Andrew. Uh, Steve, thank you for that. I want to get over to Mike Santoli, who's watching the stock market as well. What's your, what's your take here? Mike. Yeah, pretty linear in terms of uh, all the things uh, Rick and Steve were talking about and how that feeds into equity prices. There's a there's an impatience uh, inherent in the equity market to try to look for the turn, uh, to look for this sequence of better numbers that's going to allow us to believe both peak inflation is in place and then that the Fed can therefore uh, possibly ease back. And so what do we need for that? Well, the Fed has told you it needs a sequence of month on month declines in, uh, in, in core inflation at least. Uh, we have to kind of restart the clock when you get a hot number like this, and that's, that's where we are at this point, uh, essentially not being able to price in that relief. Uh, the bond market volatility has been uh, searing recently. I mean, if you look at any indication of it, as well as uh, currency market volatility, equity market volatility has been actually more muted, but it really can't fully calm down. The stock market can't really fully get away from the macro pressures and maybe focus on whether earnings are priced in or not uh, until you do see uh, those other uh, kind of fixed income and currency markets maybe settle down a little bit. Hey, Rick, Rick and Steve, I, I want you guys just to weigh in on your respective opinions about the relative importance of, of let me, I, I came up with five things in terms of that we can blame the inflation on. Okay, we got, uh, we got the Putin price hike. Uh, we got that. We got the reopening from the pandemic and the supply chain issues. Um, we got the, the, the Fed flooding the uh, the world or central bankers flooding the world with money for, for years and years and years. Uh, and then you've got fiscal spending, which some people say we overdid it during the pandemic to try and help people. Um, there must be one more. I said I got five. But what's the relative? You guys can come up with it because I've heard of all. Oh, uh, energy, energy issues in this country, the green lobby, uh, whatever you want to talk about, ESG. What do you think the, how would you rank those, uh, Steve Leisman, in terms of one gets 20%, one gets 20? Because certainly we, we printed too many dollars. There's probably no doubt about that, for, maybe for good reason. Two, we probably spent too much. All right. Uh, so what Get do you ready think? ready to laugh here, Joe, here's what, here's, what, here's what I say. I say one-third to the supply side, one-third to, uh, to the fiscal side, and 50% to the Fed. <laughs> yeah, that, that comes up to, uh, that just, that's good. You know I, be, what? Because, because, just real quickly, re, real quick, Joe, because it's the failure of the Fed in the first instance. It got the, it got the supply impact of the pandemic wrong, and it, got, it did not respond to the fiscal side. So that's why I think a 50% okay. chunk of it, yeah, it's one-third supply, one-third. And, of course, you layer in Ukraine in there, that's important. But the Fed needed to respond to those other two elements. I'm not – do you totally disagree with Steve in this case, Rick? I don't think you guys are that far off yes. on, on – yeah, no, no. Well, we're, we're not that far off, but I don't okay. totally agree. I think at the very, very top is energy. OK, you know, I was today in front of the inflation day. There's so many articles about energy. Brent briefly on Tuesday went below pre February 24 Ukraine Russia invasion levels. See, here's the deal. If it wasn't for all the mistakes all these countries in Europe and around the globe have done regarding 
overestimating renewables, underestimating fossil fuels. It would have never put Putin in this position. And the position, uh, we get fibbed at a little bit here because the, the, the numbers of Putin's output and Russia's output are up, 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 up despite sanctions. I don't hear that very often. And I think that it's because that's the way it needs to be. We need this energy. And it's really put the world in a fix. That is at top of the list. The next down, central banks. Central banks have thought they were Hercules and, and Xena the warrior princess all wrapped up in one but they're not, because at some point, you got to stop manipulating the markets and let it recalibrate. And this recalibration still has leftovers from the credit crisis. It's going to be messy. Thanks, Rick, Steve, uh, and, um, and Mike. Next on Squawk Pod, cryptocurrency lender BlockFi is fresh off a bailout from crypto player FTX. BlockFi CEO Zach Prince explains what happened and what's awaiting his industry as winter sets in. There's a lot of phenomenal companies, crypto companies, fintech companies, technology companies that are down 70, 80, 90 percent over the last year. And while no one ever wants to see their valuations decrease, we think we're in line with other comparable companies. The conversation you'll only hear on CNBC. That's right after this. This episode is brought to you by AARP. Ten years from today, Lisa Schneider will trade in her office job to become the leader of a pack of dogs. As the owner of her own dog rescue, that is. A second act made possible by the reskilling courses Lisa's taking now with AARP to help make sure her income lives as long as she does. And she can finally run with the big dogs. And the small dogs, who just think they're big dogs. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org skills. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to Squawk Pod. I'm producer Katie Kramer. Winter is coming. Crypto winter. One symptom of the cooling temps for the industry, a collapse of crypto lending firms like Celsius, which suffered a solvency crisis about a month ago, and the volatility around crypto platform BlockFi. Crypto's bear market has cost the industry bulls billions. Bitcoin, for example, has shed about 70% of its value since last November, and the entire crypto market value has dropped from $3 trillion to less than $1 trillion in that same time. Massive market fears have prompted massive withdrawals from crypto lenders, and not everyone had enough proper risk management to accommodate those withdrawal requests. <clears throat> Celsius. <clears throat> Remember that later. This story is about BlockFi a different but still troubled crypto lender. Crypto exchange FTX loaned BlockFi $250 million to weather the snows of crypto winter and then upped the credit to $400 million. Now it's made a deal to maybe buy BlockFi outright, and BlockFi was last valued at $4.8 billion. But now FTX has the option to buy the firm at a maximum price of $240 million. That's a 95% discount. So why accept the deal? Well, 
like most crypto firms, BlockFi had to do what it could to survive the winter. Join us right now in an exclusive interview. It was first time speaking out since seeking a deal with FTX for a $400 million credit facility and potential acquisition in the future as BlockFi CEO Zach Prince. Zach, it's great to see you this morning. We appreciate you being with us. Uh, lots of questions about what's happening in crypto land and specifically at BlockFi, uh, this transaction that you did with uh, FTX and what it means to the larger crypto world. Let's let's talk about the deal for a second, because clearly uh, it appears that there was trouble on the horizon. Tell us about what happened here and what this deal means. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, Andrew, thanks so much for having me on. So uh, quickly, before I get to the question, I just want to start by expressing my sincere condolences to anyone who's been negatively impacted by the platform shutdowns and bankruptcies that we've seen uh, you know, across the space over the last couple months. So the FTX transaction for BlockFi, we're really excited about it. There's two key parts of this transaction. The first is a $400 million credit facility, which importantly is subordinate to our client funds. The second is an option to acquire BlockFi for up to $240 million, which can be exercised at the earliest in the fall of 2023. Now, the goal of this deal from BlockFi's perspective was to bolster our balance sheet so that we can navigate these market conditions from a position of strength. Um, and over the longer term, we see really interesting synergies between the two firms. And I'm, I'm really impressed with what Sam and the FTX team have done throughout this time in terms of supporting the industry. Zach, you have tried to differentiate BlockFi. Frankly, I think I went on Twitter from Celsius and, and also basically from Lehman Brothers. But without FTX's help at this point, would you be filing for bankruptcy? Uh, look, Andrew, we had a lot of options. And what, what we're optimizing for, you know, our board and myself as the CEO is always the, the, capital the capital markets transaction that achieves the best outcome for all of our stakeholders, our clients, the team, uh, and our shareholders. Um, and we are so different from some of the folks that you just mentioned uh, in terms of their names. We've operated 100% of the time over the last few months. Our customers have earned over $575 million in interest in our, in our accounts where they earn yield, including $10 million over last month. So it's night and day. Like You, you can't compare Goldman to Lehman Brothers uh, in terms of how they've continued to operate. And so I think there's an analogy like that, that with the, with, with the you know, uh, passing of time, folks will realize how different platforms like BlockFi are from some of those. That, that may very well be, but just, just to, to the point I raised, Without this rescue package, was this an insolvent business? The, the, the point is that what we saw looking at our platform and what we anticipate may happen over the next six months, it was clear that we wanted to bring additional capital into the business. With that as the overlay, we went out to the market and we got right. the best transaction we possibly could. And now the company is in a stronger okay. financial position than it was a month or two ago, well, let, especially let, in terms of the security that we provide for our clients. Let, let me let me ask it maybe in a different way. Uh, equity equity value equity investors, uh, folks who had stakes in this company, venture capital firms that had stakes in this company, are they getting wiped out as a result of this? Absolutely not getting wiped out. So look, you have to think about the valuation uh, of BlockFi and what preferred shareholders are marketing their books at in the context of what's happening in the broader markets. There's a lot of phenomenal companies, crypto companies, fintech companies, technology companies that are down 70, 80, 90% over the last year. You, you, you know this better than most. Um, and while no one ever wants to see their valuations decrease, we think we're in line with other comparable companies. And, and my view is that whether it's BlockFi or other businesses, we're gonna you know, look back years down the road from now at prices that were observed 
over the next you know few weeks and months and say that was a phenomenal time to build a position. I think that's true for companies and also, you know, Bitcoin and the crypto market, broadly speaking. How should investors in your company and those who are looking at this space more broadly think about risk management, risk management on your part and frankly, on the parts of others at a time when I think there are real questions about that? Yeah, I mean, look, we're, we're going to be putting out a lot more information about risk management. We had multiple pages on our website that share details that, you know, other folks in the space, frankly, don't share uh, but we're going to be doing even more there than we've done in the past. So uh, BlockFi is well differentiated from a lot of folks in the crypto sector in terms of the team we have managing risk here, folks from places like Goldman Sachs, Bank of America, Citi. Um, you know, they've been through multiple market events and they're doing a great job helping us navigate through this one. Uh, in terms of our credit underwriting, you know, we have a very robust credit underwriting system where we classify institutional borrowers into different buckets and that determines what our lending and exposure tolerance is to those firms, and then liquidity management. We have clear policies that we publish on our website, which state that we aim to keep 10% of all client assets available for immediate withdrawal and 50% you know, on short-term lending only. Um, so we could talk for hours about this. Maybe there's a special we can do at some point in time, but I think that the market is going to get more educated. We're going to be a part of that, and we want to be as transparent as we possibly can with folks about how risk management works. Speaking of that, and, and this is more of a, a broader question about the industry, as you know, so many CEOs of firms like yours and others uh, really have been out there on Twitter and other places uh, effectively trying to say all of this is misinformation. And a lot of the mis- things that they've argued are misinformation have, have ultimately turned out to be true. Uh, but they've been so uh, aggressive about trying to shut down skeptics. Uh, do you think that's a problem more broadly with the industry? Look, I think that, um, you know, based on information that we have now, uh, it's very clear to everyone that um, certain platforms weren't operating with, uh, you know, an appropriate amount of, of risk management or, you know, in, in an area of things that that is just clearly, um, you know, fraudulent or close to it. Uh, and it can be really hard for folks to discern at the at the surface level, you know, how platforms are different from each other. But underneath the hood, you know, we've known for a long time and folks in the industry have known for a long time that there's a big difference between platforms like BlockFi uh, and other platforms. So, look, I think more details will come out about folks who, you know, who I think you're referring to. Um, but, uh, you know, in BlockFi's case, we, we just want to educate folks and we want to share, you know, accurate information about our platform and how things work here. All right. Um, what's your sense of where we are in what has been described as a crypto winter. We just had uh, Melton uh, uh, on earlier this week. By the way, she had a view that was at least short term. I don't think she thought there was a, a catalyst to move higher. For us at CoinShares, the view is we're going to stay where we are for a while. There are no near-term upside catalysts. We have yet to see Bitcoin in a recession. What do you think? Uh, look, my, my view is the same as it was when I got into the cryptocurrency industry full-time five years ago, and the same as it was when I started investing in it personally seven years ago. This is a market that's going to be in a long-term growth trend. There's a lot of very valuable things happening in this sector. Bitcoin emerging as a, as a store of value blockchain-based applications sharing more value with users, and tokenized assets, most importantly, stable coins, creating real value for global consumers and uh, you know, new payment rails at, at lower costs that didn't exist before. 
Um, these trends are going to continue. There's a lot of questions that the industry you know, has to resolve and things we need to work through in terms of regulation or transparency or risk management. Um, but my investing style is, you know, I buy things that I want to hold long term. And, and like I said earlier about equities, I think that if you're someone who believes in these trends, the industry is not going anywhere. It's now lived through whatever this is going to be, a, a recession, a depression, whatever this macro event we're going through. It's going to live through that and it's going to keep growing. Adoption is going to keep growing. It's going to keep adding value for consumers. So, you know, I encourage folks that, you know, have the right risk tolerance to, you know, participate. And, and uh, you know, I think there'll be a time in the next few years where these prices uh, look like a, a great time to be buying. Zach, uh, we appreciate you joining us this morning. We hope to uh, see you and see you again in person and follow your progress. Thanks. Thanks for having me. You bet. Cheese will be next. Coming up, to bot or not to bot? Twitter suing Elon Musk for bolting from a deal to buy the social media platform. Musk says he still doesn't have answers for how many fake Twitter profiles exist. Tulane professor Ann Lipton joins us. It's not a particularly compelling argument. We want this information to test the truthfulness of your representations, but that's not information you need to close the deal. Um, that's information to get out of the deal. This episode is brought to you by AARP. Ten years from today, Lisa Schneider will trade in her office job to become the leader of a pack of dogs. As the owner of her own dog rescue, that is. A second act made possible by the reskilling courses Lisa's taking now with AARP to help make sure her income lives as long as she does. And she can finally run with the big dogs. And the small dogs, who just think they're big dogs. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org skills. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. You're listening to Squawk Pod, today with Joe Kernan and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Here's Andrew. Twitter is suing Elon Musk after he tried to back out of his deal to buy the company, calling his exit strategy a model of hypocrisy and bad faith. Now the case, it is headed to a big court in Delaware. Join us now to discuss the legal battle ahead is Tulane Law Professor uh, Ann Lipton. Professor, Buyer's remorse just never works, uh, does it? Is it? Is this a simple case of that? I mean, even I, I, I looked over a list of things that have happened in the past, and companies that really didn't want to go through with mergers usually are, uh, they're on the losing end of, of things like this. Uh, it's Elon Musk, not a company, but um, how do you expect it to play out? Well, I mean, it's a little bit hard to be sure what... Um Musk might have up his sleeve. But based on what we've seen so far, and I'm including that letter he filed that said he was terminating the deal because he claimed that Twitter was in breach, um, it does not look like his claims are very strong. I mean, this has, as you say, this has happened before. Buyers have agreed to buy companies, things change, the markets change, and they want to back out. And when those cases have actually been litigated, um, very often they've uh, those buyers have been forced to close, even over their own objection. If is there any material cause that could be proven if 
And, and how would that happen with the whole robot, bots, uh, fake account issue? How could, what would have to happen for that to, uh, to factor in in a big enough way for him, for Elon Musk to, to prevail? Well, he's got two arguments on that score. Um, one of the arguments, the argument that he was sort of making publicly um, before you know, the lawyers started filing formal documents about it, um, was essentially that Twitter's information was false, that the merger agreement said that the SEC filings were uh, true, and the SEC filings, where they talk about their spam, misrepresented um, the, the the number of spam, the amount of spam on the platform. That was what he claimed. Now, under uh, you know Delaware law, the and, and the words of the contract, the only way that he could escape the merger on that ground was so first he'd have to show that the representation was false, and that would be difficult because. The representation was actually, we think it's 5%, but we might be wrong, and that might be the wrong number. Um, so we'd have to show that that was false. And then he'd have to further show that it was so false that it was actually going to have a very long-term significant impact on Twitter's earnings going forward. And he hasn't shown what his evidence is for thinking it's false, and he certainly hasn't shown any evidence that it's a, that's so false that it would have that kind of financial impact. But that would be one path. And now he's got an alternative path, which came in more later once his lawyers started sending formal letters, which is not so much that it's about whether the numbers are true or false. It's about the fact that Twitter promised as part of the process for closing the deal that it would supply him with sufficient information to be able to actually close. And that Twitter is stonewalling his request for information about the bots, and therefore it's violating its promise that it would give him sufficient information and then he would and so therefore he can walk away. Now, I mean, it's not a particularly compelling argument because this isn't information you need to close doesn't mean like information like that can show every like your representations are false. He's kind of openly said, we want this information to test the truthfulness of your representations, but that's not information you need to close the deal. Um, that's information to get out of the deal. So um, which is exactly what Twitter argues in its complaint. So it's just not a very compelling basis to say they are denying the information they promised to give. Do you expect uh, this to, 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 for both parties to go to the mattresses, which is an old godfather uh, <laughs> expression where, uh, will it be go all the way to the end and, and just be bloodied and, and um, I mean, hardball? Or do you expect something short of that? In, in well, go ahead. Yeah, no, if this were a normal deal, <laughs> like, I mean, this is the thing, it's not a normal deal. If this were a normal deal, the way we've seen other deals of this kind, we'd expect a settlement. I mean, we would expect that this is about, you know, the deal doesn't make a whole lot of economic sense anymore, but if you knock a couple dollars price dollars off the price, then it does make economic sense and the parties would find some kind of resolution. It is not obvious. I mean, that could still happen, but it's not obvious they're anywhere near those places for two reasons. The first is Musk's claims seem very weak. So unless he has some additional information that we haven't seen yet, um, Twitter has no reason to settle and has an obligation to its own stockholders to get the best possible price that he right. can. Um, the other uh, reason is because I'm not sure that Musk's uh, motivations are like, you know, rational economic interest motivations here. I mean, at least the impression we have um, is that he sort of decided to buy the company on a lark because he thought it would be sort of fun. He said it wasn't for economic reasons. And now he just kind of changed his mind about it. And if that's right, then knocking a couple dollars off the price isn't what he wants. And so uh, and I, I, I agree with your assessment of the situation. The, but there's a flip side to this. How long can Elon Musk tie this situation up in court, even if you think that he doesn't have a strong hand? Because there is a time value of money issue here. How quickly will Delaware move?
Could you go from Delaware to New York? We've talked about the banks and the financing component. If there's a, an out there, uh, unclear if there really is and how that would even work. Can you speak to all of this? A little bit. Um, I, uh, so first of all, in terms of Delaware timelines, Delaware can move, I mean, quickly for a, a case of this nature. But I mean, I was looking because many people have asked this question. Um, a, Twitter has asked for a trial by September. Um, that is possible in Chancery. In other kind of busted deal cases, it took several months to get through a trial and then maybe several more months for an appeal to the Delaware Supreme Court. So, you know, a, a year, a year and a half at the outside if they, is, is a very real possibility in terms of litigating this out in Delaware, and it could be shorter. Um, so uh, so, that, so there, that gives Twitter an incentive to settle for a small amount given the time value of money, but not a very large amount. So if the parties are very far apart, then that's, you know, that's not, that is not enough ground, uh, grounds to settle. As far as the banks go, um, Musk is uh, under the contract. Musk is sort of required to close as long as his financing is in place from the banks. Um, so, but here's, and, but the financing looks very locked in. I mean, those banks have pretty solid contracts, but here's the thing. If the banks back out because of Musk, if Musk is the one who kind of goes to his lenders and say, hey, are you sure you want to go through with this? Um, he's still going to be held to his obligation to close because Delaware has been clear on this, that if you're the one who like destroys a condition, if he goes out and, torpedoes his own financing, then the court will say, I'm waiving that condition. You still have to close. If it's your fault, you couldn't get the financing. So um, so it's not clear that that financing is really going to be the out for him. All right. Tell me we, we got to go in. I could talk to her for I, I know. about this. I, I know. And She's going to come on back. We're, I, I'm telling we still, you, we're going to do we, like a reality show I wanted, in Delaware you know what? I, I'm enjoying it so much. I want to go the full year and a half. And I want to just, <laughs> I want to drag this out in, in, if we if we possibly can. Plus, I just heard, and thank you. Good day. Thank you, you Anne. And, and we'll have you back. Great analysis. And that is Squawk Pod for today. Thanks for listening. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 Eastern and follow Squawk Pod wherever you get your podcasts. We'll meet you back here tomorrow. We are clear. Thanks, guys. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.